0: Amidst the grounds of the Miskatonic University stands a grim archive. Within lies a collection of the darkest secrets known to mankind. But visitor beware, for what horrors lie within their pages? Can you resist their maddening call, or will you succumb to the tales from the Orna Library? Tonight's story... The Unnameable and the Hound by H.P. Lovecraft
1: The Unnameable We were sitting on a dilapidated 17th century tomb in the late afternoon of an autumn day at the old burying ground in Arkham and speculating about the unnameable. Looking toward the giant willow in the center of the cemetery, whose trunk has nearly engulfed an ancient, illegible slab, I had made a fantastic remark about the spectral and unmentionable nourishment which the colossal roots must be sucking in from that hoary, charnel earth. When my friend chided me for such nonsense, and told me that since no interments had occurred there for over a century, Nothing could possibly exist to nourish the tree in other than an ordinary manner. Besides, he added, "'My constant talk about unnameable and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing as an author. I was too fond of ending my stories with sights or sounds which paralyzed my hero's faculties and left them without courage, words, or associations to tell what they had experienced.' We know things, he said, only through our five senses or our religious intuitions. Wherefore, it is quite impossible to refer to any object or spectacle which cannot be clearly depicted by the solid definitions of fact or the correct doctrines of theology, preferably those of the Congregationalists, with whatever modifications tradition and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may supply. With this friend, Joel Manton, I had often languidly disputed. He was the principal of the East High School, born and bred in Boston, and sharing New England's self-satisfied deafness to the delicate overtones of life. It was his view that only our normal, objective experiences possess any aesthetic significance, and that it is the province of the artist not so much to rouse strong emotion by action, ecstasy, and astonishment, As to maintain a placid interest and appreciation by accurate detailed transcripts of everyday affairs. Especially did he object to my preoccupation with the mystical and the unexplained, for although believing in the supernatural more fully than I, he would not admit that it is sufficiently commonplace for literary treatment, that a mind can find its greatest pleasure in escapes from the daily treadmill and in original and dramatic recombinations of images usually thrown by habit and fatigue into the hackneyed patterns of actual existence, was something virtually incredible to his clear, practical, and logical intellect. With him, all things and feelings had fixed dimensions, properties, causes, and effects, and although he vaguely knew that the mind sometimes holds visions and sensations of far less geometrical, classifiable, and workable nature, he believed himself justified in drawing an arbitrary line and ruling out of court all that cannot be experienced and understood by the average citizen. Besides, he was almost sure that nothing can really be unnameable. It didn't sound sensible to him. Though I well realize the futility of imaginative and metaphysical arguments against the complacency of an orthodox sun-dweller, something in the scene of this afternoon colloquy moved me more than usual contentiousness. The crumbling slate slabs, the patriarchal trees, and the centuried gambrel roofs of the witch-haunted old town that stretched around all combined to rouse my spirit in defense of my work, and I was soon carrying my thrusts into the enemy's own country. It was not indeed difficult to begin a counterattack, for I knew that Joel Manton actually half-clung to many old wives' superstitions, which sophisticated people had long outgrown, beliefs in the appearance of dying persons at distant places and in the impressions left by old faces on the windows through which they had gazed all their lives. To credit these whisperings of rural grandmothers, I now insisted, argued a faith in the existence of spectral substances on the earth apart from, and subsequent to, their material counterparts. It argued a capability of believing in phenomena beyond all normal notions. For if a dead man can transmit his visible and tangible image half across the world or down the stretch of the centuries, how can it be absurd to suppose that deserted houses are full of queer, sentient things, or that old graveyards teem with the terrible, unbodied intelligence of generations? And since spirit, in order to cause all the manifestations attributed to it, cannot be limited by any of the laws of matter, why is it extravagant to imagine psychically living dead things in shapes, or absences of shapes, which must for human spectators be utterly and appallingly unnameable. Common sense, in reflecting on these subjects, I assured my friend with some warmth, is merely a stupid absence of imagination and mental flexibility. Twilight had now approached, but neither of us felt any wish to cease speaking. Manton seemed unimpressed by my arguments, and eager to refute them, having that confidence in his own opinions which had doubtless caused his success as a teacher whilst I was too sure of my own ground to fear defeat. The dusk fell, and lights faintly gleamed in some of the distant windows, but we did not move. Our seat on the tomb was very comfortable, and I knew that my prosaic friend would not mind the cavernous rift in the ancient, root-disturbed brickwork close behind us, or the utter blackness of the spot brought by the intervention of a tottering, deserted, 17th-century house between us and the nearest lighted road. There in the dark, upon that riven tomb by the deserted house, we talked on about the unnameable. And after my friend had finished his scoffing, I told him of the awful evidence behind the story at which he had scoffed the most. My tale had been called The Attic Window, and appeared in the January 1922 issue of Whispers. In a good many places, especially the south and the Pacific Coast. They took the magazines off the stands at the complaints of silly milk sops. But New England didn't get the thrill, and merely shrugged its shoulders at my extravagance. The thing, it was averred, was biologically impossible to start with. Merely another of those crazy country mutterings which Cotton Mather had been gullible enough to dump into his chaotic Magnalia Christi Americana, and so poorly authenticated that even he had not ventured to name the locality where the horror occurred. And as to the way I amplified the bare jotting of the old mystic, that was quite impossible, and characteristic of a flighty and notional scribbler. Mather had indeed told of the thing as being born, but nobody but a cheap sensationalist would think of having it grow up, look into people's windows at night, and be hidden in the attic of a house in flesh and in spirit. Till someone saw it at the window centuries later and couldn't describe what it was that turned his hair gray. All this was flagrant trashiness, and my friend Manton was not slow to insist on that fact. Then I told him what I had found in an old diary kept between 1706 and 1723, unearthed among family papers not a mile from where we were sitting. That, and the certain reality of the scars on my ancestor's chest and back, which the diary described. I told him, too, of the fears of others in that region, and how they were whispered down for generations and how no mythical madness came to the boy who, in 1793, entered an abandoned house to examine certain traces suspected to be there. It had been an eldritch thing. No wonder sensitive students shudder at the Puritan Age in Massachusetts. So little is known of what went on beneath the surface. So little, yet such a ghastly festering as it bubbles up putrescently in occasional ghoulish glimpses. The witchcraft terror is a horrible ray of light on what was stewing in men's crushed brains. But even that is a trifle. There was no beauty, no freedom. We can see that from the architectural and household remains, and the poisonous sermons of the cramped divines. And inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked gibbering hideousness, perversion, and diabolism. Here, truly, was the apotheosis of the unnameable. Cotton Mather, in that demoniac's sixth book which no one should read after dark, minced no words as he flung forth his anathema. Stern as a Jewish prophet, and laconically unamazed as none since his day could be, he told of the beast that had brought forth what was more than beast but less than man, the thing with the blemished eye, and of the screaming drunken wretch that they hanged for having such an eye. This much he badly told, yet without a hint of what came after. Perhaps he did not know, or perhaps he knew and did not dare to tell. Others knew, but did not dare to tell. There is no public hint of why they whispered about the lock on the door to the attic stairs in the house of a childless, broken, and bittered old man who had put up a blank slate slab by an avoided grave, although one may trace enough evasive legends to curdle the thinnest blood. It is all in that ancestral diary I found. All the hushed innuendos and furtive tales of things with a blemished eye, seen at windows in the night or in deserted meadows near the woods. Something had caught my ancestor on a dark valley road, leaving him with marks of horns on his chest and of ape-like claws on his back. And when they looked for prints in the trampled dust, they found the mixed marks of split hooves and vaguely anthropoid paws. Once a post-writer said he saw an old man chasing and calling to a frightful, loping, nameless thing on Meadow Hill in the thinly moonlit hours before dawn, and many believed him. Certainly there was strange talk one night in 1710 when the childless, broken old man was buried in the crypt behind his own house in sight of the blank slate slab. They never unlocked that attic door, but left the whole house as it was, dreaded and deserted. When noises came from it, they whispered and shivered, and hoped that the lock on the attic door was strong. Then they stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving not a soul alive or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a more spectral character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. During this narration, my friend Manton had become very silent, and I saw that my words had impressed him. He did not laugh as I paused, but asked quite seriously about the boy who went mad in 1793, and who had presumably been the hero of my fiction. I told him why the boy had gone to that shunned, deserted house, and remarked that he ought to be interested, since he believed that windows retained latent images of those who had sat at them. The boy had gone to look at the windows of that horrible attic, because of tales of things seen behind them, and had come back screaming maniacally. Manton remained thoughtful as I said this, but gradually reverted to his analytical mood. He granted, for the sake of argument, that some unnatural monster had really existed, but reminded me that even the most morbid perversion of nature need not be unnameable or scientifically indescribable. I admired his clearness and persistence, and added some further revelations I had collected among the old people. Those later spectral legends I made plain, related to monstrous apparitions, more frightful than anything organic could be. Apparitions of gigantic bestial forms, sometimes visible and sometimes only tangible, which floated about on moonless nights and haunted the old house, the crypt behind it, and the grave where a sapling had sprouted beside an illegible slab. Whether or not such apparitions had ever gored or smothered people to death, as told in uncorroborated traditions, they had produced a strong and consistent impression, and were yet darkly feared by very aged natives, though largely forgotten by the last two generations, perhaps dying for lack of being thought about. Moreover, so far as aesthetic theory was involved, if the psychic emanations of human creatures be grotesque distortions, What coherent representation could express or portray so gibbous and infamous a nebulosity as the specter of a malign, chaotic perversion, itself a morbid blasphemy against nature? Molded by the dead brain of a hybrid nightmare, would not such a vaporous terror constitute in all loathsome truth the exquisitely, the shriekingly, unnameable? The hour must now have grown very late. A singularly noiseless bat brushed by me, And I believe it touched Manton also, for although I could not see him, I felt him raise his arm. Presently, he spoke. But is that house with the attic window still standing and deserted? Yes, I answered. I have seen it. And did you find anything there? In the attic or anywhere else? There were some bones up under the eaves. They may have been what the boy saw. If he was sensitive, he wouldn't have needed anything in the window glass to unhinge him. If they all came from the same object, it must have been an hysterical, delirious monstrosity. It would have been blasphemous to leave such bones in the world. So I went back with the sack and took them to the tomb behind the house. There was an opening where I could dump them in. Don't think I was a fool. You ought to have seen the skull. It had four-inch horns, but a... "'face and jaw something like yours and mine. "'At last I could feel a real shiver run through Manton, "'who had moved very near, but his curiosity was undeterred. "'And what about the window panes?' "'They were all gone. "'One window had lost its entire frame, "'and in the other there was not a trace of glass "'in the little diamond apertures. "'They were that kind, the old lattice windows "'that went out of style before the 1700. I don't believe they've had any glass for a hundred years or more. Maybe the boy broke him if he got that far. The legend doesn't say. Manton was reflecting again. I'd like to see that house, Carter. Where is it? Glass or no glass, I must explore it a little. In the tomb where you put those bones, and the other grave without an inscription. The whole thing must be a bit terrible. You did see it. Until it got dark. My friend was more wrought upon than I had suspected, for at this touch of harmless theatricalism, he started neurotically away from me and actually cried out with a sort of gulping gasp which released a strain of previous repression. It was an odd cry, and all the more terrible because it was answered, for as it was still echoing, I heard a creaking sound through the pitchy blackness, and knew that a lattice window was opening in that accursed old house beside us. And because all the other frames were long since fallen, I knew that it was the grisly, glassless frame of that demoniac attic window. Then came a noxious rush of noisome, frigid air from that same dreaded direction, followed by a piercing shriek just beside me on that shocking, rifted tomb of man and monster. In another instant, I was knocked from my gruesome bench by the devilish threshing of some unseen entity of titanic size but undetermined nature. Knocked sprawling on that root-clutched mold of that abhorrent graveyard, while from the tomb came such a stifled uproar of gasping and whirring that my fancy peopled the rayless gloom of miltonic legions of the misshapen damned. There was a vortex of withering ice-cold wind, and then the rattle of loose bricks and plaster. But I had mercifully fainted before I could learn what it meant. Manton, though smaller than I, is more resilient, for we opened our eyes at almost the same instant despite his greater injuries. Our couches were side by side, and we knew in a few seconds that we were in St. Mary's Hospital. Attendants were grouped about intense curiosity, eager to aid our memory by telling us how we came there, and we soon heard of the farmer who had found us at noon in a lonely field beyond Meadow Hill, a mile from the old bearing ground, on a spot where an ancient slaughterhouse is reputed to have stood. Manton had two malignant wounds in the chest, and some less severe cuts or gougings in the back. I was not so seriously hurt, but was covered with welts and contusions of the most bewildering character, including the print of a split hoof. It was plain that Manton knew more than I, but he told nothing to the puzzled and interested physicians till he had learned what our injuries were. Then he said we were victims of a vicious bull, though the animal was a difficult thing to place and account for. After the doctors and nurses had left, I whispered an awestruck question. Good God, Manton, but what was it? Those scars, was it like that? and I was too dazed to exult when he whispered back a thing I had half expected. No, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere. A gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were eyes and a blemish. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination. Carter... It was the unnameable.
0: The Hound. In my tortured ears, there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint, distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It is not dream. It is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse. I alone know why. And such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the sombre philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysman were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which, even in my present fear, I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions, or catalogue even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place where, with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled an universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground where huge winged daemons carven of basalt and onyx vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange lights, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death, the lines of red charnel things hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors of our moods most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes a narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. All around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely, lifelike bodies perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world, Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes, and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting, bald pates of famous noblemen, and the fresh, radiantly golden heads of newly buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings which it was rumored Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed brass and woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemonical ghastliness whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod, would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titulation which followed the exhumation of some ominous grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. Saint John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, that accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumour and legendary. The tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in these final moments. The pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows. The grotesque trees, drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass, and the crumbling slabs. The vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon. The antique ivied church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky. The phosphorescent insects that danced like death fires under the yews in a distant corner the odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound, which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, For he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this selfsame spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved into this ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves. The grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gentle moaning night wind, and the strange half-heard directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold and beheld a rotting, oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of that thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth, and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching, winged hound, or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression on its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither St. John nor I could identify. And on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuryed grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature, which sane and balanced readers know, but we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Lang in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestations of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavern-eyed face of its owner, and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from that abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background. But the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone, and without servants in a few rooms of an ancient manor-house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be frequent fumblings in the night. Not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large, opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it, And another time we thought we heard the whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination alone, that same curiously disturbed imagination which still prolonged in our ears the faint far baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned strangely scented candles before it, we read much in Alhazred's Necronomicon about its properties, and about the relation of the ghouls' souls to the object it symbolized, and we were disturbed by what we read. Then, terror came. On the night of September 24th, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying at St. John's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance to the event, and became as worried as I. It was that night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for beside our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard as if receding far away a queer combination of rustling, tittering and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad or dreaming, or in our senses we did not try to determine, We only realized with the blackest of apprehensions that the apparent disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly, we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, but sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victim of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count, Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess. And every night that demonic baying rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29th we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November 18th, when St. John, walking home after dark from the distant railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house, and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague, black, cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was whisper, The amulet. That damned thing. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens, and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. As I pronounced the last demonic sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw the dim-litten moor, a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of the green jade. But now, afraid to live alone in that ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights I heard the baying again, and before a week was over, felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening as I strolled on Victoria Embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind stronger than the night wind rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must at least try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was and why it pursued me were questions still vague, but I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abyss of despair when, at the inn in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The bang was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest corner of the city. The rabble were in terror, For upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighbourhood. In a squalid thieves' den an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which had left no trace. And those around had heard all night above the usual clamour of drunken voices a faint, deep, incessant note as of a gigantic hound. So at last I stood again in that unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows, and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivied church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated and had frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither, unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. But, whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine, and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected though at one point I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow from my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed, for crouched within that centuried coffin Embraced by a close packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats, was the bony thing that my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp ensanguined fangs yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom and when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep, sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade, I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind. Claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from black night ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web-wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the Oblivion, which is my only refuge, from the unnamed and unnameable Sincerely, thank you for listening to our strange story tonight, and we hope it gave you chills and thrills alike. Special thanks to Colin DeYoung for providing the narration for The Unnameable. Join us next time for another one shot episode Love You to Death by Chaosium Incorporated. Follow us on social media. We are Tales from the Orn Library official on Facebook and at Orn Library Pod on Twitter. Additionally, you can visit our website at talesfromtheornlibrary.com, where you can view all the handouts used in the show thus far. And until next time, remember, the library is always open.